Welcome back to American Scene, the show where we talk about movies with American in the title and what they have to say about American identity, culture, and values. My name is Ben Rosen. And I'm Alan Austin. As always, if you have anything you want to say about the show, any of our previous episodes, or anything we cover today, please connect with us on Twitter at American Scene underscore, on Instagram at American Scene Pod, or send us an email at AmericanScenePod at gmail.com. This week, we are downshifting from Flyers to a quirky little movie called American Splendor. What did you think of the movie, Alan? American Splendor. So just to put in context, I remember when this movie came out, I remember it having buzz. I remember it getting no Oscar nominations for Paul Giamatti. So I remember being like, and even when I was younger, so this had, this was what, 17 years ago? So even 17 years ago, I was a 13-year-old, or 14-year-old movie buff, and I was like, well, I'm not going to see this right now if there's no need to so I can make some Oscar predictions or evaluate, blah, blah, blah. So it always fell by the wayside, but it's always been in my stream of consciousness. Like American Splendor, I've always known about it. I haven't forgotten about it. I've always wanted to watch it. And thank goodness for this podcast for forcing me to. Forcing in a good way, not in a gun to the head way. Because I really, really was shocked at how much I enjoyed this movie and how much it fits in today's society in terms of filmmaking, uh, reality television, just kind of all these things morphed into this really cool, quirky, and the comic book movie revolution, which has happened over the last, I don't know, 10 years. It's just like really, really fun to watch in 2021. So happy new year, and let's talk about this fun movie, which I really, really enjoyed. I don't think it's like this upper echelon phenomenal, like what I had an emotional experience, but I had a really, really fun time watching it. And it's an hour 42, and it goes by pretty quick. Yeah, it is. I, I also, I don't remember when it came out because I, I don't think I was really paying attention to movies, at least not to the Oscar race and not to kind of the the Sundance darlings. Right. You know, uh, which this movie obviously was. But I learned about it at some point, probably in college or something. And yeah, it, it, it was always something that was kind of like, oh, I'll get to it eventually. And and kind of thinking, oh, well, it's just this kind of like little indie movie about a comic book writer. How interesting could it possibly be? And the things that they do with it, and we'll talk about the meta element and and Giamatti's performance is incredible. This was before Sideways, so definitely the, sort of the ascendance of Paul Giamatti and also, you know, the ascendance of, I think, the indie darling, because this was also a few years before, um, as I mentioned, it was before Sideways. It was also before stuff like Little Miss Sunshine or uh, Juno or something like that. So it kind of... Uh, it kind of checks some of the similar boxes of those kind of movies, but it came before, I think, people like kind of really freaked out about movies like that. For sure. And for Paul Giamatti himself, he had been in a lot of stuff prior to this, and this was the film in 2003 that he was nominated for Best Breakthrough Performance by the National Board of Review. So it's quite interesting to see, like, a lot of these actors are you know, thank, they, they do this thankless work until a certain, you know, critic or a certain so-and-so who has some say decide to recognize them. So Paul Giamatti's career up until this point, you know, was a lot of supporting roles. A lot, like you said, uh, Sideways had not come out yet, but he was always kind of the, like, frumpy guy who would, like, be associated somehow with the main character. Not Not a huge part. I mean, I would say, like, 
maybe his biggest role was Private Parts early in his career, which is the Howard Stern movie. He had a really big part in that, you know, and then he had little parts here and there. He pops up in The Truman Show. He pops up in Saving Private Ryan and a couple other things. Then he gets Man on the Moon and Big Mama's House back to back where he becomes a that guy. So this is all leading up to American Splendor. And I do want to point out the first movie I probably ever saw him in was Truman's Show. But the first movie that I ever went, this is Paul Giamatti, and he is now in my consciousness, in my, in my thoughts, is Big Fat Liar, which I saw in theaters where he plays the Big Fat Liar. So this is a guy who was bouncing around, a working actor, but this movie here, this performance, this is the Paul Giamatti we all know and love today. Absolutely. We all love Paul Giamatti. uh, And I think like what a great marriage of material and character and direction. And for him at the time, like of, of the exact kind of work that he needed to do in order to break out. So this is a 2003 film adapted from the graphic novels American Splendor by Harvey Picar and Our Cancer Year by Picar, Joyce Brabner and Frank Stack. Uh, it stars Paul Giamatti, of course, as Harvey Picar, Hope Davis as Joyce, Judah Friedlander as Toby, and all three real-life versions of those characters in the film. Uh, this was directed by documentarians Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulsini. It's a hybrid scripted narrative, unscripted documentary animation, uh, which they do incredibly well. Um, I'm actually shocked it made as much money as it did. It only made $8 million, but it also, holy crap, it made $8 million. And uh, and we also have to recognize that um, uh, 2020 uh, was the 10th anniversary of uh, of Picar's death, uh, unfortunately. Um, he is no longer with us, uh, but left an incredible legacy with his work and with, uh, with this film, um, in which he also plays a very big role. Uh, also a fun bit of trivia for you, speaking of trivia, which we're going to throw into one of our future minisodes, do you know who the actor was who previously approached Picar to play him? Can I get some kind of hint? Because I have no idea. Um, a movie he made has some relevance to the next movie we're going to cover. Richard Gere. <laughs> a different Gigolo movie. Rob Schneider. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I'm really glad it's Paul Giamatti, right? Yeah. For this particular role, uh, for sure. Yeah, which uh, Joyce, in response in one of the interviews I read, was like, it would have been a disaster. <laughs> which, well, yeah, especially without if you a had doubt. Adam Sandler playing Toby. Oh, my God. His, his interpretation of Toby would have been so problematic. <laughs> And this is, and for the fans at home, Ben and I are two really big Adam Sandler fans. So it's just about knowing knowing the work, knowing what fits where. And American Splendor is better off taken seriously. I'll put it that way. Without a doubt. And it takes a level of authenticity that, um, I mean, we can jump right in and talk about the meta element as we, as we talk about kind of the authenticity and the heart and the care um, and the true like appreciation for this character uh, and his work and what it obviously meant uh, to to his fans and to the the comic book world at large. Um, 
these are documentarians. You know, this is an adaptation of autobiographical source material, also starring the subjects and writer of the source material. It's narrated by Harvey Picard, uh, who also comments on the adaptation within the context of the movie of saying, like, he looks at, you know, the guy playing me looks nothing like me. And it works so well, especially because of the voiceover narration, because it feels very much like a novel. We should be able to hear Picard's inner thoughts just as we would if we were reading the uh, the comics, you know? Right. I would say that in terms of the meta element, this film is enhanced by it. The film does two things, I think, really well. One is introduces us to the fact that Picard is going to be in this movie early. And they get us to know his voice so that when Giamatti comes on screen doing the voice, it's not out of left field. It's something we have been braced for. They've prepped us so that we can watch this performance now, already knowing who Picar was, not knowing who he was beforehand, and seeing how Giamatti does it, which is a testament to Giamatti's role. Because we, as an audience, you know, we're seeing the real guy at the same exact time we're seeing Giamatti, sometimes in the same scene. So it's, it's really tough, and it's really, really slick how they do it. And in a movie that has... It's the antithesis of Slick, Harvey himself. It's really a nice job by the filmmakers. And the fact that it's made by documentarians is very clear. Like, this is a documentary inside a nonfiction film, but the whole time we're entertained as if it were a comic book movie. It's a really fine line. It's really unique in that sense. And do I consider it a comic book movie? Not really. I think it's a movie about Harvey Picar, a man who, you know, made his name through comics. But the film itself is just so real, which I get it. That's what his comics are. They're so real. But I didn't think of this as a comic movie. I thought of this as a biography about Picar told through a unique lens. So I know we're probably going to have a little bit of a disagreement on that, but it's just I'm rambling a little bit because there's just so many thoughts I have about this film. Is it a comic book movie? That's the question I raised to you. Yes, well, I think the movie wants us to feel that it both is a comic book movie and that it has something to say about comic book movies and about sort of like the the typical Hollywood movie. And so, uh, I mean, you see that right in the opening scene where Harvey Picar is introduced on Halloween opposite Batman Robin, Superman, and Green Lantern. And when I was writing my notes, I almost forgot Green Lantern, which is its own kind of meta thing because everyone forgets Green Lantern was a movie. Um, But, uh, you know, they're introducing him alongside these people and Harvey is saying in that scene, like, I'm just a kid from the neighborhood. But then Picar kind of creates this alter ego for himself within his comics and that he is also interpreted by different uh, different uh, artists, I think, is, a th- is uh, you know, pertinent to the conversation of, like, how how Picar as a comic book character, different from the person, makes this a comic book movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, it goes through his origin story, and it goes right. through, like, he kind of, like, faces these these trials, and, and it has his, like, Toby is kind of his sidekick, right? Like, um, and he's got his, like, Lois Lane and Joyce, but it's, at the same time, you know, he says... You know, if you're looking for romance or fantasy or like someone to save the day, this ain't it. So at the same time that he's kind of like mythologizing himself as he's writing these comic books, 
he's saying, like, don't buy into the Hollywood crap. Right, which is the catch-22 of this whole experience. So it, it's it's very unique. But, you know, that, that whole comic book discussion, by the logic you laid out, any story can be a comic. It just has to be written as such. If American Splendor was a novel and not a comic, we're not having the comic discussion. It's not entering our psyche. Same character, same circumstance. So I get it. It's It's under the heading comic book because of American Splendor. But this movie itself is just so much, it, it's really cool. And watching it now, like I said, with the, the comic book renaissance that we have in movies, it's a real nice change of pace. So I just want to jump into the, the Picar character because Giamatti's performance is a little bit lighter than the real Picar. And I think it's a necessary choice because if you go full Harvey, it's going to be tough for us, not because he's not likable, but he's it takes a minute to get used to him. So if Giamatti's doing the full Harvey impression the entire time, it's going to be hard for us to get on board with him. You know what I mean? Even though he's got this wonderful story and he's quite a quirky oddball, but Giamatti lightens it up a little bit to the point where we're seeing him as this normal guy who's just like got a lot on his plate, doesn't always deal with it the right way. And he makes, you know, mountains out of moles, molehills with almost everything in his life. And if we have him just being a nasty neurotic guy, it won't hit home as hard. But when we get to see it with Picar in the documentary style footage, it's better because it's it's a little different than Giamatti. So it's the same character with a with a tweak that hits better when Picar is playing himself rather than Giamatti going full Picar, so to speak. Sure, yeah, I think the narrative, uh, there were some liberties, I think, that even Picar and Joyce, when they, um, you know, were doing interviews, recognized that there were some liberties taken with um, with their characters and, and with the portrayal, which itself, I think, like, goes also to that meta element of, like, okay, now here are these other two people who are interpreting this person's life and interpreting iterations of their characters within the comics, not necessarily themselves, but the comic book versions of them, you know what I mean? I think we're on Harvey's side, the character Harvey, not the, not the real Harvey. Although, you know, again, like we can have that debate of like, well, aren't they both kind of true versions of Harvey yes. himself and the character, right? But um, I think we're on his side because we we see the world he lives in. We see the kind of dead-end job he's in. We see the kind of the weird characters that surround him. And I think he's so recognizable. I mean, this 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 character is so specific and universal of, of just a guy who's just trying to make it through life, mm-hmm. really, um, and has these passions and these interests, and he's a really smart guy, but, you know, it's not like he can't catch a break. He's just like, well, well why kind of try? It's Right. I think the word that, that I came upon in, in doing some reading was, like, intransigent. Like, he just, the best description for him is actually the way Amy Adams describes Christian Bale in American Hustle is, like, he is who he is and he didn't care. Right. And it's just, like, I'm not going to change for anyone. This is who I am. This is this is the life I have. And, like, why why would I change for anyone else? Um, and thankfully, we do see him change throughout the film and and kind of open up more. And I think that's really sweet. But like one of my favorite lines is when Joyce meets him at the airport or, or he meets Joyce at the airport and he's like, by the way, you know, you should know right off the bat that I got a vasectomy. And he and, just walks out of the airport. Yeah. <laughs> just like turns around expecting her to follow him. And the fact that we've <laughs> met the real Picar, we could totally picture him saying that and it adds to the humor. Yeah. But he is, there is like a natural curiosity about him that I think is 
that's why we gravitate towards him. Like the care that he takes with uh, with Toby and the jelly beans and like the kind of the in the documentary style of that. Like he is open-minded and interested. He hasn't entirely closed himself off. He's just kind of like, well, this is who I am. I have my hangups, but I also have my passions and my curiosities. And, you know, I'm a little bit open-minded, but like, you know, I don't expect to be president of the United States. I don't expect to be a millionaire or anything, you know? There are several instances where he hates yuppies. And it's very clear that he does not see himself in this light. He he relishes in the fact that he is the everyman. He really, really enjoys that. And there's that's a really important element. The everyman, you know, even more so than Christian Bale's character in American Hustle, who was a scam, you know, a con artist, a scammer. Picard's just a guy who goes to work, has friends, is just miserable, but almost he welcomes it. You know, I think they mentioned Misery Loves Company in this movie as a theme directly. So he's just this kind of you know, and it's funny, the way Bob Crumb sees him in the movie is this kind of like Yeti-looking garbage monster. And the way other people draw him is a little bit more normalized. But it's clear that he is a character. He is just this off-the-wall, offbeat guy, but he himself sees himself as the everyman. And it's important to note that. Even though he makes himself a comic book hero, in his comic, he's the everyman. It's almost like right. the, the Seinfeld. If Seinfeld were a comic, it would be American Splendor. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. if it didn't take place in uh, Manhattan. Uh, yeah, I think we can use the conversation of the Picard character to get into the conversation of the everyman in American history, in American literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is a character, this is the kind of novel that was incredibly popular, Was ex- is everywhere in American history. Yeah. Uh, so Picar is Midwestern, first of all, that's like key, lower class, white, male, uh, lives a plebeian lifestyle, as his uh, uh, soon-to-be ex-second wife uh, calls it, um, and recognizes that for a lot of people, you know, every day is a struggle. Every moment is rife with conflict and the possibility and aspiration and despair. I think he refers to himself as a working stiff. Uh, and you mentioned Bob Crumb, uh, but when, when Picard's just showing him his, his comics for the first time, he's like... So, anyway, I just, I tried, uh, I tried writing some stuff about real life. You know, stuff that uh, the everyman's got to deal with. These are all about you? Yeah. You turn yourself into a comic hero. (laughs) Well, sort of, yeah, but, you know, there's no idealized shit. You know, there's no phony bullshit. This is the real thing, man. You know, ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. And, uh, And I love the moment when he says you know, I'd like to trade some of that growth for happiness. That like, you know, miserable experiences, you know, bad experiences cause you to grow in some way. And he's like, well, I'm sick of suffering. Like, why do we have to suffer to grow? And I think that's everywhere in these kinds of novels. Yeah, there's a lot of catcher in the rye in American Splendor. And this movie is chock full of gems like that. Like one-liners, narrative notes, just stuff that oozes into our brains as genius. And I'll get to some when we go through our our things we like the best. But yeah, and Judah's character, Toby, Judah Friedlander plays him. You think that Judah Friedlander is playing this way over the top and a little bit too on the nose. And then you meet the guy and on the nose in a good way. Like, it was shocking how Toby 
is this guy. And, you know, there are some more American elements, which I don't want to jump ahead, but in terms of uh, commercialization, marketing, MTV, David Letterman, exploiting, you know, for financial gain, what we think are unique or you know what I'm trying to say. And they really exploit Toby. And this happened in real life. So like the American moment of exploiting this guy for financial gain because you think he's odd or unique. They literally show the documentary footage of that instance in this movie. So, you know, the American part of American Splendor is very on point. One of the more American movies we've covered and because of a multitude of things. Absolutely. I want to uh, mention some of the more like academic reading I did in terms of like the American novel, because like we say that this fits into the historical context of this kind of character, this kind of novel, this kind of story. But it really is, uh, there's so much to that point. So first of all, Fiona Morrow wrote for The Independent, to prepare for filming, the directors immersed themselves in American movies from the 1970s, The Deer Hunter, Taxi Driver, Five Easy Pieces, Fat City, wanting to marry the look of the film both to Picard's neorealist style and to the Cleveland milieu, known colloquially as the Rust Belt. So that perfect um, portrayal of, like, classic American city, classic American uh, feel, uh, that they should have to travel back three decades in American cinema to find films about regular, unbeautiful people leading regular, unbeautiful lives underlines what unusual subjects Picard and Bradner make these days. They are unique in the landscape of of Hollywood movies. You know, unbeautiful people leading unbeautiful, unaspirational lives, really. Uh, and then getting into the, the history of um, this kind of American novel, early and mid-20th century writing was from authors with working-class backgrounds, whereas now I think you see the New York Times bestsellerists, and these are people who went to, you know, had Ivy League educations or, you know, a much more sort of like elitist view, I think, of the kinds of popular books uh, that, that come out these days. But you had folks like Sinclair Lewis and Hemingway and Steinbeck who had blue-collar working-class backgrounds then become the noted, notable writers of their time. As Gerald Howard wrote in an essay for Tin House, which I could not find the full text of, uh, but I found a couple links that talked about this essay, the message being conveyed was that the guy, and they were, of course, guys, who had written the book in your hand had really been around the block and seen the rougher side of life so you could look forward to vivid reading that delivered the authentic experiential goods. And that's what Picard's doing is he's taking his own background, his own life, and saying, this is authentic because I have lived it, you know, and so have you, you know, probably. Uh, a blogger uh, wrote for Bell Mead Books about the same essay, the real stories of working class Americans and the authors who write them seem to have vanished except largely as examples of a misunderstood Kmart realism, quote unquote, as Howard calls it. Uh, in his lengthy essay, Howard celebrates authors, Raymond Carver in particular, whose work maintains authentic working class roots. And there are others, Bobby Ann Mason in Kentucky, Richard Russo in New York State, and Dorothy Allison are just three of many he mentions whose novels are set in affectionately but precisely observed bars, diners, and workplaces that are their native habitat. And that's, again, exactly what we see in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, so the novels that this, uh, the graphic novels that this film is based on and the film itself really owe a lot to that history and fit so clearly in a context of American working class 
character American working class, the American working class novel. Sure. Yeah. It, it, it's what you said. It's it's this, yeah, the, everything you read and, you know, articulated is spot on. I kind of assumed that there was this kind of history to this kind of character and this kind of novel and then being able to read up on it. And and I I think when we, when we ask, does this uh, film earn its American title? I think without a doubt because of exactly what this what this film is doing and by film we're we're meaning the comic did the comic earn its title because the film is just named after the comic so sure sure right um yeah there was another there are another couple uh, uh big quotes that I pulled I'll, I'll put all these links in the uh, show description because a, a lot of this is really worth reading mm-hmm. uh, especially because of as we talked about like the the structure and and the way that they made this film I think it's worthwhile to go and look at like how this film was made I mean this this I, I think I read this was made in like 25 days and like I, I just can't imagine pulling together something so intricate and so so spot on. Um, yeah. in such a short amount of time and with such a little, uh, such a, a small budget. You know, just to, to, to comment on that, the small budget, 25 days shooting, there is a film out there that is considered one of the most American, Not has, it doesn't have American in the title, but it's a, I'm going to see if you can know it, a 1994 film that is considered one of the greatest movies in American cinema for the journey the character goes on. Do you know what movie I'm thinking of? Far Scump. And I would say that Harvey Picar is the low lowest possible rent version of Forrest Gump. And it makes sense to me that this film was, you know, based on this neurotic guy who has these extraordinary circumstances happen, uh, based on things that are out of his control sometimes. Uh, and Forrest Gump's the same way. American Splendor is like the poor man's version of Forrest Gump. And I mean that with the utmost respect. You have a guy who's just like off the beaten path who people don't fully understand and he's suddenly got his own comic because Bob Crumb likes to like almost laugh at him, not necessarily with him. Then we've got, he catches on with Letterman. He gets the girl, all of a sudden, on a whim, they decide to get married. He's got the friend, the Toby, the Bubba. You know, there's a lot of similar elements here. And I do think it's like a much lower scale version of Forrest Gump. And I just think it's so fascinating. Uh, I have not seen Forrest Gump since I was much younger. Um, And I know there is a lot of... There's some backlash to the film, I think, in a, like a contemporary reading of it. So I don't want to talk too much about that film itself, but I think you touched upon something really well observed is that Forrest Gump, in as much as he's a fictional character, is also kind of a folk hero in American history, despite, again, like, yeah, not being uh, uh, not being a, a real person. But Harvey is a real person mm-hmm. and also kind of exists as his own kind of folk hero. You know, right. when you mention Letterman bringing him on to his show as if that's a kind of, you know, you could you could read that kind of as like the, uh, you, you know, the moment when Forrest Gump meets the president, meets Kennedy, right? Right. Um, but the way that Letterman treats him and the way that Picar then stands up to him and is like, no, I reject your, like, y- you brought me on to kind of like make your jokes and make fun of like the place where I'm from and make fun of me and the kinds of, uh, you know, the kind of world I live in, um, you know, screw you. Can I 
Uh, what do you mean calling me curious, you know? I mean, I met you before the show, you know? And, uh, I meant curious yeah, yeah, in, in a know. fascinating way. Oh, all right. A man who has, has, has the presence of one who is quite fascinating. Okay, because I met you before the show. I thought you were know, a pretty nice guy, you know? And then, yeah, well, I think you I thought, you're... Made him, you know, like, he might, I might be uh, nursing a viper in my bosom. <laughs> no. you know, something like that. You're a little Get defensive that, about this, huh? Yeah, yeah, man. Okay. I'm waiting for those Cleveland jokes, you know? Go ahead. <laughs> all right, settle down, Harvey. Yeah, all right. Settle down. Now, uh, now let's let's explain to folks who may not be familiar with your work what it is you do here exactly. You have uh, comic books about you in your right. daily life, and, and you also have a regular job in Cleveland working at a hospital. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But you know this guy. Harvey, that, uh, I'm beginning to wonder. To, you could probably get by on what you make selling your, your work, because I know people are after you to write other things, and you're, you're publishing this anthology. What, do you mean, who, what people? What people? What are you talking about? Well, I, I know that, that I know that you <laughs> you uh, <laughs> you know that uh, I'm no showbiz phony. I'm telling the truth. Now you, Come on, man. Now you can't. And I think that goes to a very specific kind of folk hero, where it's like uh, the, sort of champion of the underdog, mm -hmm. champion of the underclass, and saying. Uh, it's got kind of this, you mentioned also, um, you know, his disdain for yuppies. And I think he, he's got this kind of disdain for anyone who thinks that they're above somebody else. Anybody who looks down on people like himself and Toby and Joyce. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And we haven't even like gotten into like most of the movie, but, but in terms of like general American elements, everything we've pointed out, and we could probably go on. I'd l I can't wait for the mini-sode on this episode because... I feel like stuff's just going to come to me, you know, more and more as I keep thinking about it. Because this movie is very complex and layered for what is seemingly a simple story. But there's just so much going on, especially in in the way we discuss the film. So I, I, I expect more to come to me. But everything we've touched on so far is just like the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, you know, there isn't a lot to this movie in terms of what happens. Right. He starts writing the comic book uh, and then it kind of generates some sort of uh, buzz. Um, but it's not about him becoming a famous author. It's not, it's not, it's not that kind of story. It's no. not rags to riches at all. It's, it's his own personal development, I think, is really at the end of the day. And I, I think I read this somewhere, but also I, I kind of observed it myself where it's like, Thinking of him as a folk hero, as a as a superhero, as as I mentioned at the top, like he does miraculously survive what seems like imminent death, just like any superhero movie. And the very documenting of his illness becomes his salvation. Storytelling yeah. is how he found a life and how he saved his own life. In a story like this, little victories play so much bigger. So every time Harvey has a little victory, it's just so uplifting in a, in a way. Like the fact that you think at any time Joyce is going to leave him and she doesn't, that's a victory within itself because he's on his third wife. The fact that you think he's never going to have a kid, he doesn't want to reverse his vasectomy, and Danielle falls into their lap, that's a victory. There's so many little victories that, you know, little in context to comic books is what I'm saying, but like we're pulling for Harvey as neurotic and negative as he is. We're not put off by it as audience members. You know, you see somebody like this who in more popular media, you know, I think of actually a scene uh, in uh, Bumblebee. It, it, just, it just came to me. This is just one example. Another but, classic uh, American film. It is, it is very good. I mean, very much ripping on E.T., but whatever. But there's one scene that's just like a throwaway thing where a, a sort of 
quote-unquote white trash couple is fighting and they, you know, they're arguing and, like, she wants to leave him and he's probably drunk or whatever and some, uh, you know, big robot shows up and they both get blasted into oblivion. That's the way that characters like Picard and Joyce are typically treated in a lot of Hollywood media as side characters, as jokes, you know, as, as dispensable. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is the unlikeliest person you'd expect to build a quirky version of the American family that Joyce kind of shows up in his life. Their, their courtship is very strange. Like she proposes to him after like, you know, a few hours. And then that Danielle, as you mentioned, their, their uh, adoptive daughter falls into their lap um, in this very interesting way, suddenly they're a whole family. Uh, this this guy who's on now his third wife and uh, this woman who obviously goes through depressive episodes, but they work through all of their troubles. Um, they don't call it quits at the drop of the hat. And, you know, at the end there is, you know, you don't get the sense necessarily that that Harvey's going to change his ways and, you know, clean up his apartment and, you know, uh, uh, that that they're going to have the white picket fence and everything. But there is some optimism there. Yeah, it's it's rare in a film where characters fight and it's not the end of the world. We're so ingrained with fights leading to divorce, fights leading to violence, fights leading to some extreme end place where this film's like, yeah, they fight. And then there's some really touching scenes where she's like, I love you, babe, and gives him a kiss. Like there's genuine care for these two odd people. And odd is, it's relative, right? Like, who are we to say somebody's odd? But I think the film wants us to know that they are not your every man's every man, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so like, yeah, it's great. And I'd love to dig into some of the other stuffs about the movie. Yeah, well, speaking of what you just said, uh, you know, not the everyman's everyman. I, I do love that uh, bakery scene. And I also love the meta commentary on the bakery scene where Picar, the real Picar is like, what bakery scene? What are you talking about? But it's thrown in there for such a specific reason, which is to show, you know, uh, uh, Paul Giamatti as Harvey meeting this person he went to school with. And um, she recognizes him and is like, oh, you must be doing so well or, or, or things must be great. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm still working my job. But like, you know, I'm glad people like the comics or whatever. And she's like, oh, well, I'm like, I'm married now and I have a kid and like, I don't really have a life anymore. And it is sort of this like, even within the environment in which uh, Harvey exists, there is this sense of, well, the grass is always greener, even among people of their same, uh, you know, social hierarchy, so to speak. I have one question for you, and Letterman actually asks him this, and they don't really give us an answer, but it could be something simple. Why wasn't he able to live off his comics? I think, I mean, this was the mid to late 70s, early 80s when all this was happening, so... Um, Maybe it wasn't as much of a cash cow. I mean, it's it, it, you had to know about it, right? You had to be so heavily invested, not just in comics, but in, like, kind of off-the-beaten-path, uh, like, very niche kind of comics, before the internet existed. Right. And I think after the film came out or or at some point, I, I read that some uh, Harvey and Joyce like started a blog and like would update people on their lives. So like, I think after that and after this movie came out, maybe they uh, gained some more, a, a little more fame or, or you know, outside of the, the niche comic book circle. But yeah, you got to recognize at, at that time, it still right. was the, the Batman, Superman, uh, yeah. Robin uh, and Green Lantern. And it's yeah. also, I think he probably didn't want to leave his job for stable reasons, you know? He probably had, like, health benefits and stuff like that. 
he's old school in a lot of ways. So yeah, this wasn't about seeking fame. This was just about like, as he said to uh, Bob Crumb, the the quote that I mentioned earlier, like. I just wanted to capture real life and and the complexities of everyday life for people like me. And that's that's all it was. It wasn't about, yeah, fame or money or anything like that. It was just, uh, he just wanted to be seen, uh, which is possibly the most, certainly the most universal, um, definitely, uh, yeah, definitely for folks in the Rust Belt, for folks in middle America, that's definitely something that's, uh, that they strive for, you know, like just don't, don't, call me the flyover states, you know, don't, yeah. uh, uh, don't suggest that my existence is, is less than cause I'm not in LA or New York or, you know, any of these major cities or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, there's that great moment towards the beginning where he opens the, the file and sees that the guy, the veteran in question born and died in Cleveland over a certain amount of time. And he gets really upset. What's his legacy? And although he in real life is born and dies in Cleveland, what he accomplished is the real story. So you cannot limit a person, like you said, to their geography, their circumstance. It's what they do with their time on this planet and what they mean to their family, friends, and loved ones that really is what a life's worth is. So it's it's really nice. Very well said. Hmm. Very well said. We, we're running out of time. We've just talked and talked and talked, but there's a lot of stuff I want to quickly go over in this movie, and I'm sure you have the same. Um, just the general documentary style. One of my favorite moments of the film is when they break the fourth wall, they break the fifth wall, and have Giamatti and Judah Friedlander come on the set of the documentary and oversee the jelly bean scene, and Giamatti's just like in the back dying laughing at it. It's just really, really fun. I really love that. Um, Crumb curing his voice by saying, I'll write the illustrations for your comics, where he's like, and then he says, I'll do it, and he's like, whoa, and he goes, you sound much better. He goes, you cured me. Really fun stuff. I do love, um, <laughs> I, I love that performance of Bob Crumb because it's so like, I, I, I didn't see the movie Crumb, uh, which was a documentary about him. Um, but uh, I just love that performance. It's so understated. It's so kind of like, <laughs> yeah, just like quietly chuckling in the corner to himself. Like, it's great. Like it's, it's like great. pretentious, but he's still friends with the guy. It's hard to call. I like, cause that, that word came to me as well of pretension, but it's just like, eh, I'm, I'm into weird shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I, I think it's, it's fair not to say like, that he does see himself as better than Harvey in a way. The way he draws him, like you could tell there's a certain arrogance to him over Harvey. Whether it's mean-spirited or not. Well, Harvey seems to think that he's, like, better than him because he's like, oh, like, you, you know, they're making a movie about you or, like, you're living in, like, you started the whole San Francisco scene or, or whatever it was. So, like, and the fact that uh, that crumb only, like, comes back to Cleveland every once in a while, yeah. you know? So I think I think Harvey sees him as uh, that kind of thing to aspire to, but Harvey also recognizes, like, his own deficiencies. Like, I can't draw anything but stick figures. So yeah. he does kind of have to depend on, on, on crumb. There's a couple nice montages in the film. One is at the towards the beginning where they do this comic rendering of everyday activities so you can get a sense of what the American Splendor comics are about. And the other is the the uh, behavioral disorders the that Joyce goes through and she's like diagnosing every character we've met so far and some others with their, you know, their quirks, so to speak. And it's it's really fun. Uh, one of my favorite lines, the short weekend begins with longing. Great line. You know, there's the Alice Quinn scene in the bakery, which we, we briefed earlier. You've got Alice, 
who's like, wow, I envy you. And he goes, wow, I envy you. You have the family. And she goes, you don't know how when the last time I was able to curl up with a good book. So it's always grass is always greener on the other side. And that's a real American story, you know, a real American thought process. Some other countries don't have that. You know, they deal with what they've got and they go forward. Americans are always thinking, what if? I also love that scene for the, uh, again, for the meta commentary that that shows up. You know, I'm reading this book by Dreiser now. Jenny Gerhardt. That's one of my favorites. Yeah? You know, I hope that book don't end like uh, so many of those naturalist novels with someone, you know, getting crushed to earth by forces he can't control. Mm, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah? I mean, it's certainly not your Hollywood happy ending, but it's pretty truthful, which is rare these days. Yeah. All right. Mm, this is me. Oh. Not a Hollywood ending but it's truthful. Yeah. And that's exactly the kind of ending that we get from this movie. So uh, the meta commentary is great, but also just it's that's a wonderful little scene that I'm sure did not actually happen in real life. No, and I think people often misunderstand that when you're telling a, a, a true story, these are not scenes exactly how they happen. They're scenes to convey the general feel of the moment in these people's lives. I think it's common misunderstanding. Uh, a couple lines that made me laugh out loud. In response to Joyce being a little skeptical about uh, Harvey's appearance in person, she's not sure if she wants to meet him because Crumb draws him with the smelly lines. And he goes, those are motion lines. I'm an active guy. Great line, openly laughed out loud. And another line that made me laugh out loud, she's eating with him in what they call a yuppie restaurant, but really it's just some like chain restaurant. And she's like, I've got a lot of borderline health disorders that limit me politically when it comes to eating. My favorite line of the film, because, and that's a line very relevant to today's society and how people view their eating habits and what's right and ethical and not. So really, really fun. Oh yeah, definitely not eating at uh, Chick-fil-A. Her puking after making out with him, great. Like that would happen to Harvey. Not just that, but the sort of fake out of him like kissing her neck and she's going, Harvey, Harvey, (laughs) Harvey. Where's your bathroom? (laughs) It's a great, like, oh, you think she's enjoying this, but actually she's in, like, excruciating pain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and you know what? For the sake of time, I'll save some of— Remind me to pull out my notes for the mini-sode, because there's a a couple other things here. But, uh, yeah, a lot of American Pickle vibes in this movie, too, with people exploiting who they find as unique and odd uh, as a joke. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the, uh, the the whole Toby segment of uh, him showing up on, on MTV is like, you you have to imagine that he was not in on the joke at right. the time. But, but also, like, how much would he have really cared? I don't think he would have. Uh, yeah, like, a- again, it's like he was who he was and he didn't care. Like... He, I, I do love the whole like Revenge of the Nerds segment where they go to see the movie. Oh, what movie could possibly be worth driving 260 miles round trip for? It's a new film called Revenge of the Nerds. It's about a group of nerd college students who are being picked on all the time by the jocks. So they decide to take revenge. Uh, so what you're saying is you identify with those nerds? Yes. I consider myself a nerd, and this movie has uplifted me. There's this one scene 
where a nerd grabs the microphone during a pep rally and announces that he is a nerd and that he is proud of it and stands up for the it's right. It's just such a, I mean, great, great Judah performance, great line reading, um, great whole segment. And like the misreading between Picar and Toby of, of Revenge of the Nerds is also kind of like, you know, how you can, you could read this movie in yeah. two different ways of like, yeah, here's this guy who, yeah, didn't have high aspirations for his life. Um, you know, still pretty obscure to most people who, you know, probably never heard of this guy, born and died in Cleveland, but also like, look how much he meant to to certain people uh, for whom his comics and and his graphic novel and his life, uh, you know, probably meant a lot. It's a really, really nice film. I'll, I'll mention just one thing, uh, and this I just pulled right from the Wikipedia, but uh, the music played in the film mostly reflects Picard's affection for avant-garde jazz and American music uh, from the 1920s and 30s. A couple of songs uh, appear by uh, American Splendor illustrator Robert Crumb and his band, also featured in the movie. So, uh, again, just like the choice of what kind of music they uh, they put in the film, also very American. And now it is time for our American moments. You're playing our song. There's so much, uh, as we've already talked about with this movie, um, you know, feeling so much a part of the American uh, aesthetic, the, you know, American history, American uh, literary history. Uh, but what are some moments that stood out to you as as quintessentially American? Uh, strikes. You know, he wears the on strike against NBC. Uh, you know, Americans having a voice of their own to uh, go against what they don't feel is fair and picket and and fight and stand up against. That's pretty American, if you ask me. It's not it's not a huge focus of the film, but he makes a point of it. He back he has a, he goes after Letterman on the air. It's a really nice scene, actually. And I would have loved to see the documentary footage in, like, the end credits or something of that particular episode. Yeah, um, they, like, NBC wouldn't let them use that footage from that specific appearance. So if you rewatch the movie, you see the framing that they do where Letterman's not actually in the shot. It's a lot of voiceover. It's, like, kind of, like, profile of Picard's heads, like, shadowed a little bit. Um, so that's how they got away with that. But they did actually let them use uh, footage from several of the other appearances, as you see in the movie. Mm. And then one last one I'll throw at you. Joyce wants to make political comments based on overseas happenings. And I think it's very American to use, you know, world events and our viewpoint on them as the main focus of certain stories. Uh, yeah, uh, at the uh, first Letterman taping, and I, I pulled this out as an American moment as well, uh, Joyce is in the green room trying to change the channel from watching Picar on TV, uh, it, which is such a like an, another meta thing where it's just like ex- watching in the green room the show that's taking place in another room is so like, but uh, not being able to find another channel. And she says, uh, I'm trying to get the news. There's supposed to be this big story breaking about Iran and the U.S. selling weapons to the Contras, which is just like, yeah, a, a great American moment of like trying to be informed, wanting to shift from this like nothing entertainment to something of of substance that's that's actually important. Yeah. What do you got? Uh, Wheaties for breakfast. I just picked that out. I was, I was I just saw it. I was like, oh yeah, Wheaties is the yeah breakfast of champions. Eat your um, Wheaties. I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't know that uh, that other countries eat Wheaties specifically. I'm sure they have their own kind of versions of cereals, but uh, Wheaties, like, yeah, Breakfast yeah. of Champions, always featuring American sports heroes on the box. So again, like, you know, I don't think this box had that, but uh, yeah. I've never had Wheaties. I maybe did once. I don't I don't remember. I was, uh, what were the breakfast cereals of, of choice in oh. the... Uh, 
Alan Austin household. <laughs> uh, my personal favorite breakfast cereals, Frosted Flakes. I would have regular Cheerios, not Honey Nut, and I would dump a lot of sugar in there. And I also loved some of the less tasty but more entertaining ones like Cookie Crisp or Lucky Charms. But I would love the marshmallows so much more than the other pieces. So, the, you know, those. The, the, I never had, like, kicks. I was never a kicks kid. I liked kicks a lot. Yeah. I liked kicks a lot. You yeah. got you got your kicks? I um got my kicks. Yeah. So yeah, I would say my top series of all time though are Frosted Flakes and Lucky Charms. Nice. So I could not have Lucky Charms for many years uh, growing up as uh, an Orthodox Jew because of the uh, the gelatin that was in the marshmallows. I have since then, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, growing up, I'm trying to remember. A Captain Crunch was big in my household. Do you know Captain Crunch's name? Uh, Cornelius, right? It's is it Cornelius? I have no idea. It's Horatio Magellan Crunch. <laughs> Why do you know that? <laughs> because for New Year's Eve, I I was the host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire uh, for my family. And that was a question. That was the million-dollar question. Wow. Was Cornelius an option? Because Captain Cornelius Crunch is pretty good. It it would be. Triple C? Yeah. Let's see, what else? Uh, We did, I feel like we really ran the gamut of breakfast cereals, my my sister and I. And it was kind of, it was one of those things where there was a rule in the the households of, uh, like, we weren't going to open a new box before we finished the old box. And I don't think that rule lasted very long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you want different things on different days. Exactly. It's you know what? What am I in the mood for? Um, but uh, Fruit Loops was big, man. Uh, Cocoa Pebbles, Fruity Pebbles. Uh, what was the other one? Uh, not Fruit Loops. What's the what's uh, Tricks? Gosh, yeah, we did. I, I think I settled into a period of where like let me go for something a little bit healthier, and I actually did love. Uh, honey Nut Cheerios. Um, that was definitely like my preferred iteration of the of the Cheerios uh, uh, franchise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, I always ate dry with potato chips. I kind of made my own little party mix. And Wow, <laughs> that is, that is fucking brilliant. I know. So that was my go-to snack I could make myself as a kid. Just put like potato chips and dry cinnamon toast crunch. What a combo. Yes. Other American moments. Uh, there's a shot outside of Cosmic Comics where Joyce works, uh, where there's a VW Beetle painted as an American flag. It's it's, qu- it's like blink and you'll miss it, but it's but it's there. Uh, although strange that they would use a Beetle, which of course is a German car. That must have actually been there. Like I don't see them having the budget to be like, yeah, let's let's get a, an American flag painted VW Beetle in here. Um, and then at the second Letterman taping, uh, Letterman tells Picar, you're the embodiment of the American dream. There you go. And, and, and I don't know how much Picar actually believes that. Um, but there, that's me. It's certainly, a, an American moment. I'd say so. So what's your rating of the film? Oh, I give this four pina colada jelly beans. Okay. Which, uh, are, which are very authentic tasting. So it just as this movie is very authentic to, uh. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will give this film four. Now that you've said there's American Painted Beetle, I want to give it four American Beetle, but the beetle doesn't fit. So I'm going to go with uh, four. <laughs> four smell lines? Four, four motion lines? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll, give it, I'll, I'll give this film four. Yeah, sure. Four motion lines. I don't know. But no, that would mean it stinks. And it, no, it's active. It's an active <laughs> <laughs> because it was such an active viewing experience. Um, uh, 
Yeah, Brilliant. yeah, uh, whatever. <laughs> Fill in the blank. I'm not good with these rankings. Four. No, you are. You, uh, you were good. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> there we have it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that is a wrap on American Splendor. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Leave a positive review. You can give us your unfiltered opinion on Twitter at AmericanScene underscore. We're on Instagram at AmericanScenePod. And if you'd like to follow either of your patriotic co-hosts, I'm Ben Rosen on Twitter at NotThatBenRosen. And I'm Alan Austin, Twitter at Alan underscore Austin underscore. And we will see you next time. Bye.